Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny chats with Tim McCollum, founder and CEO of organic chocolate company Beyond Good, about the importance of helping local farmers in Madagascar create sustainable businesses for themselves and their families. Enjoy the show. Tim, I'm so glad you could be on our show today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. What I do with every podcast is I ask everyone the same first question, and that is, what is your favorite food memory? And I know you've, you've traveled all over. You were a Peace Corps volunteer in Madagascar. You've you know, had all these amazing experiences. Do you have a, a favorite food memory you want to share? Yeah, uh, I think one of my favorites actually has to do with chocolate and the origins of this business. Um, I was at a single origin chocolate tasting probably around 2006 or seven. Um, and, it, and I'd been to other food tastings or um, spirits tastings, uh-huh. but it was the first time where the idea of terroir became abundantly clear to me. Um, and we're going through a series of different chocolate bars and um, got to Madagascar and the person, you know, conducting the tasting described what the uh, flavor of, uh, of good Madagascar cocoa should be. And mm-hmm. I tasted it and it was the first time ever I'd been in a tasting. I was like, I know exactly what this person's talking about. Oh, wow. I too can taste fruit flavor in this chocolate. And uh, it was a bit of a turning point for me, and in some ways, that um, that's always been with me as as we've built this business. That's so cool, and I mean, I I think people don't always understand that chocolate, like wine or champagne, where it's grown and and how it's grown, really affects the the taste. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, and I, I think you know I'll, I'll pick up where you left off, which is a lot of people don't understand that, and it's not their fault. It's because 95% of what's out there on the market doesn't fall under that category. Right. That's classified as commodity chocolate and it all more or less tastes the same. And then you've got maybe 5% of what's out there um, that really is true to origin or true to the bean and the chocolate itself releases. Yeah. Like that chocolate flavor you would expect, but also um, it just takes the depth and dimension of the experience to a different level when you can taste um, really interesting flavors throughout the entire chocolate bar. Right, right. Um, so I, I want to go back. You know, I mentioned that you were a Peace Corps volunteer in Madagascar, and I I was a Peace Corps volunteer a long time ago in the Dominican Republic. My husband was a Peace Corps volunteer in Gambia. You know, Peace Corps I feel like is a very special way to get involved in these issues and really you know, set the course for, for your life. Do you, do you agree with that, that sort of Peace Corps influenced, you know, what you're doing now? I mean, for me, it's a, it's 100% the case. I think, you know, for some people, maybe not so much, but I think it definitely has that potential for everybody who goes through it. Um, very unique program. Um, uh, to my knowledge, one of the only programs in the world where you can actually go to a different country and experience that country at the grassroots level on a bit of a permanent basis mm-hmm. where you're, you know, taken into the culture, you learn the language, um, you learn how to see things through a completely different perspective and a very unique experience. And yeah, I'd agree it has the, the potential to 
can maybe not change who you are as a person, but forever change the way you think about certain things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't been a Peace Corps volunteer. So it's, you know, I have, you know, I, I went in very idealistic. I think like m- most people who join Peace Corps do, uh, but I learned so much and I, I didn't, I didn't really teach anybody anything. I learned a lot from the people I was working with who were amazing. And I agree hundred percent. And I think if most, um, volunteers are being honest, like they'd say the same thing. Like they, yeah. they get more from that experience and the people, you know, they go to volunteer on behalf of. And in some ways that actually was the motivation for starting a business after Peace Corps because I felt like what I had done there wasn't quite enough and could be taken to a different level if we applied business practices to it right. versus, you know, just volunteering for a couple of years. Absolutely. So, so tell me more about Beyond Good and, and when you started and, you know, you've given me a sense of why, but why, why have this chocolate, this, this chocolate company that works directly with farmers? I, it's, like, it's, <laughs> it's a big ten, question. 10 years in the making. No, no, it's ten, 10 years in the making and a lot of different dots to connect for how we came to be and, and how we've built the business over the last decade. Um, but the, the core focus has always been manufacturing at origin. Uh, it's something you don't hear a lot about. I think there's a lot of press, um, a lot of um, awareness that there are issues in the chocolate industry around farmer sustainability, around forced chi- child labor, around mm-hmm. deforestation. It's just a huge $100 billion industry with some very, very large problems associated with it. Um, and we always wanted to change that not on a, a grand scale because we're a relatively small business, but more on a, um, you know, uh, in a way that could actually be a beacon for others to follow. Right. Right. And it's always been about manufacturing at origin and it, it sounds easy, right? You make, make chocolate where the cocoa grows. Um, but in practice, it's very hard to pull off, but that's the key for us in unlocking everything else we can do in the industry. So that's the, trigger for farmer income because if you're manufacturing locally you've reduced or eliminated three to five layers of middlemen in the supply chain all of that cost savings can go back into the farmer's pocket or into the consumer's pocket it's a a better model Um, by manufacturing at origin you've also got um, a really good opportunity for trace traceability and transparency and again if you you think about like that you know, normal supply chain, uh, a rural cocoa farmer in Africa is selling into two to three um, intermediaries before it's even exported out of the country. And then sometimes it goes to a broker and then sometimes onto a chocolate maker. So you've kind of lost transparency mm-hmm. before you the products even left the country. Whereas in our case, you know, we open up a factory door and a farmer delivers cocoa directly to us. So transparency is unavoidable. Um, it just, like I said, it's kind of the trigger for us being able to do what we want to do um, with farmers, with flavor, um, also with the environment where we're pretty active. Absolutely. Um, can you explain how, you know, sort of the difference between income that the farmers you're working with uh, make versus, you know, what you just described when farmers are selling to, you know, middlemen al- along the value chain? Yeah, I think that the first thing I'd uh, qualify is that 
um, the, you know, the global industry is, um, there's a lot of different supply chains, a lot of different ways a product can go from a, a cocoa farmer into the a chocolate making environment. So I'll, I'll give you some generalizations, uh, just to, to illustrate the point. Um, typical, you know, West African supply chain in West Africa between Ivory Coast and Ghana produces about 70% of the world's cocoa. Um, that passes through three to five layers of middlemen before it can get to a chocolate factory. Mm -hmm. Those farmers um, on average would make anywhere between 45 to 75 cents a day, depending on, you know, if it's Ghana or Ivory Coast. Wow. Um, Not enough to live off of, Mm -hmm. um, not enough to get excited about what you're doing with your life. So if you're a cocoa farmer making 75 cents a day, you're not going to reinvest in your crop. You don't see it. Your kids don't see future in it. Um, so there's a real challenge with sustainability because farmers aren't making enough. Um, I think everyone knows about it, but very few people know what to do about it. Right. Um, and then in our case, you know, a, a farmer would make up to three dollars and fifty cents a day. So you can look at it a lot of different ways, but it's usually between you know five to seven to eight times what. On, on industry average, a cocoa farmer makes. And I, sh- I should add, there's two reasons or two drivers behind that. One is what I said earlier, there's just not a lot of middlemen in our supply chain. In fact, there's zero. So everything can go to the farmer. The second is our farmers are producing um, what's considered heirloom cocoa, um, which has a very interesting flavor to it which trades on a, a different market than your commodity market. So kind of the focus being eliminating middlemen, but also quality. Mm-hmm. It's those two things that are that are able to drive farmer income in, in our supply chain. And, and one of the things you're doing is you're doing direct trade versus, you know, doing it in a fair trade kind of way. Can you explain the difference and why that's important? Yeah. And there, you know, it's, I think certifications, you know, we could probably have a whole nother conversation on that, but they get a little fuzzy for the consumer. Um, and, you know, in our case, direct trade is, you know, quite literal. Money goes from our pocket into a farmer's pocket in Madagascar. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we at one point were more formally, you know, fair trade certified, found that it wasn't a good fit for our supply chain, tended to be a bit of a top-down approach. Um, and when you're trying to implement it on the ground with smallholder farmers, yeah, it just didn't make sense. So we switched to something that made a little more sense for us. We're able to customize it, um, set the criteria in a way that makes sense for our business, and then have a third-party audit and verify that we're uh, we're being true to the criteria we set. Great, great. Um, you you talked a little bit about how you know you're not just helping sort of farmers and and communities, but you're also working with farmers to protect the environment and protect biodiversity. Can you explain how that works? I don't think people really understand how um, cacao is grown and and the impact it can have on on soil and the environment and, and, you know, uh, biodiversity. Yeah, I mean, it could have a a negative impact or a positive impact. Sure. Um, and I think a lot of the re- recent reporting out of West Africa tends to be negative where you've seen national forest being deforested um, as a cash crop to sell timber and then replanted with another cash crop, cocoa. Um, and, you know, that's obviously what 
what we avoid. Um, and in Madagascar, it's, yeah, I think it's also important to look at that, the island itself and the, the state of biodiversity there because it's so unique. So 85% of the plants and animals from Madagascar are endemic. They don't exist anywhere else in the world. It also has one of the highest severe rates of poverty in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people going into the forest and not clear cutting, but just taking a branch at a time so they can start a fire to boil water, to cook right. rice, to feed their family. So it's really the culprit of the environmental destruction of Madagascar's poverty, not, you know, corporate logging. Absolutely. Um, so what, we, what we've been able to do on, on the cocoa side, the first thing I think people should know is cocoa grows on a tree. Um, and ideally cocoa does best if it's planted under a canopy of larger trees to provide shade. Um, you want cocoa to have about 50 to 60% exposure to sun and then 50%, um, shade planted in that environment. You know, you can start to see, uh, a a layer of, you know, cocoa trees that, that might be 30 feet tall and then a a canopy above it that might be 60 Mm -hmm. um, feet tall. From a distance, it almost looks like, you know, that could be a tropical rainforest. Um, and the shade trees that are used are important too. Sometimes those are fruit bearing trees that provide other, um, food for the farmers. Sometimes they're endemic, um, shade trees from Madagascar. Um, but you can basically start to recreate a forest if you plant cocoa with a little bit of attention and, and care. Right. Um, and what's especially important in the case of Madagascar is they have this high rate of endemic species that are still going extinct due to habitat loss, which is due to poverty. So we've been able to get farmers, um, you know, making three to four times what the average person in Madagascar makes. Right. So they're earning a lot of income from the trees. They're incentivized um, to plant trees to give them more yield for cocoa which require these shade trees above it. And long story short, what we've seen over the last, especially five to six years is um, force coming back to Madagascar. I've right. been back and forth in that country for 20 years. I can't think of another example that I've seen with my own eyes where forest land has been replanted by smallholders um, on their own, essentially, just due to having the right economic incentives right. in place. That's amazing. And kind of like the, the, you know, the, the, I think the most interesting piece to all of this is um, we've done studies with the Bristol Zoo, which is a lemur um, research center out of the United Kingdom. And they found lemurs living in the cocoa forest. So five species of endangered lemurs living in the cocoa forest. And they were, you know, pretty stunned by the results as were we because they they never found lemurs living in such close proximity to humans before. Wow. And if you can kind of solve all that, right, it's, it's, if you can, most issues in countries like Madagascar or elsewhere in Africa ultimately are issues of poverty. And if you can solve that, you can really solve a lot of other issues, including, you know, how can you reforest land and how, how can you provide habitat for lemurs? Yeah, I love that you keep driving that point home. I don't think people really understand that the the cause of like a lot of the things that we're seeing happen in the world are because of poverty. And if you can, you know, help help farmers become, you know, 
better at doing business and, and give them, you know, opportunities to have those resources and empower themselves, that that's truly you know, uh, transformational. And that's what will protect the environment and, you know, uh, alleviate hunger and poverty and ev- everything else we want. But like, that's, that's really the key. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. It's also, um, sometimes not a lot of people don't probably recognize that in the NGO world where they're trying to solve problems. Um, but if you can get, you know, a, a person to a good basic level of, um, of income, it also triggers forward thinking or future-based thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which tends to be, um, you know, very hard or lacking in a lot of poor countries because people are still based or people are still focused on basic survival. Um, so the idea of conservation might not register with someone who can't feed their kids. Absolutely. The idea of education might not register with someone who can't, you know, feed their kids. So, you can get them to that point, then everything else comes into play. But yeah, you know, to, to us, that's always been the first first problem to try and solve, um, which unlocks the ability to solve a lot of other problems. Right. And then you have these multi-generational effects, because if you can get parents out of poverty, it means their kids won't, you know, com- keep you know, having that vicious cycle of poverty. So it's it's truly transformational. We've been talking a lot about sort of farmers generically. Can you describe or, or give us some stories about the farmers that you're you're working with and, uh, you know, just sort of describe them, paint a picture of who these folks are? Yeah, I mean, in the, in the case of Madagascar, there's um, a little over 100 farmers that we work directly with. And in a lot of cases, we've been working with the same people for seven, eight, nine years. Um, I always think like kind of pre and post beyond good. So what were they doing before we started to work with them and, and what are they doing now? Um, and it's, you know, on, on a very personal note, it's one of the most exciting things that, that we get to do as a business is work with farmers. Um, so yeah, we have within our supply chain, three different groups or producer groups that we refer to, um, ranging from small cooperatives to medium cooperatives to medium-sized landholders. Each is a little bit different, um, but you know, your typical rural cocoa farmer um, doesn't have access to a lot. So they don't, they're not living with electricity or running water, uh, typically wouldn't have a high level of education. Um, and, you know, that's kind of their starting point. And what we've done is gone in and set up a new system that they can work off of, um, which gets value added skills to the farmer, um, specifically fermentation and drying, mm-hmm. which is a big piece to flavor development in chocolate. So teaching farmers how to ferment and dry themselves, that adds value to, to what they're doing versus just harvesting a, a raw pod and selling that with, with no work on top of it. It also brings a little bit of organization to a village or to a, a cooperative because now they're keeping books, they're keeping records. Um, there's a little bit of science involved, so they have to understand basics of fermentation and drying. So in addition to all the income that's, that's going into a farming community, there are skills going in. And with the skills comes a, a certain amount of pride um, or excitement or enthusiasm for what they're doing. Money is important, but there are these other things that also motivate humans. And um, I think it's important that, you know, any solution has both of those involved. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I I mean, I think it's it's important for people to understand that these are folks who are trying to do their best, right? You know, they're they're not destroying the environment because they want to. They're um, you know, trying to 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 make a living and and so by providing some of this infrastructure and these skill sets, that gives them control of, you know, uh, the 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 way, you know, the way to keep this going, the way to continue these skills and 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 pass them on to, you know, their kids or or younger farmers. And I I, I want to get into that a little bit, you know, how how beyond good is helping, you know, young farmers and 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 women farmers take part in 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 this these opportunities. Um I think the the best thing about that is w- we didn't set out to do anything um, intentional, but those things are, are happening on their own. And I think we always get a little more excited when we, we see something that's happened that we didn't necessarily encourage or push or recommend um, because it's a byproduct of, of doing business the right, the right way with farmers. Uh, but in terms of, of women, most of the, the leadership and the, your work at the cooperative level is done done by women. Um, it's probably not going to sound politically correct, but like they're just more responsible mm. in Madagascar than than say your average man. Um, so they drive a lot of the cooperative productivity, decision making, um, and as it relates to younger farmers, again, uh, that's a global issue that that the cocoa industry needs needs to look in the face. Um, and again, it gets back to poverty. If a kid sees that their their parents aren't making any money and struggling on a cocoa farm, they're not going to be excited to inherit that cocoa farm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, we've seen uh, a number of younger cocoa farmers join a, join a cooperative whose parents maybe started the cooperative seven eight years ago. And I mean, we even have farmers who have a bac, which is like the French school equivalent of a high school degree which is very rare in rural Madagascar to find somebody with a high school degree. Sure. But in a farming cooperative, it's even rarer. Um, and it's just nice to see those things happening where you have farmers in their mid-20s who have seen the development happening around them in terms of you know, adding capacity, adding fermentation and drying. Seeing those things come to life creates a little bit of excitement in a village that otherwise probably hasn't seen a ton of change in, you know, three or 400 years. Absolutely. And I mean, I think what you're getting at is it's hope. You're providing hope and, and people are creating hope themselves, which they didn't have before. And I, you know, that's another thing that I don't think a lot of people who are, you know, buying chocolate at their Whole Foods <laughs> or another, their, another store, they, that's what they don't understand that this is, you know, this is your, your, by buying a product, you can provide hope to a community. I'm I'm very glad you brought that up because you're right. I, I think that's something that it sounds a little hokey, but it's a hundred percent true. Hokey. Yeah. <laughs> and and what we what what we started to realize, you know, midway maybe five years ago is all right. You know, basic need number one on a human level for a cocoa farmer or anyone living in poverty is a, a stable income, right? You you need to be able to check that box. Right. The second piece to that is the hope or faith that if you do that job well, there'll be a reward at some point with more income or more responsibility Mm -hmm. or a better job. Mm -hmm. And you really need both of those boxes to check 
in order for, for, for people to grow and be happy and fulfilled. And the latter one is actually the harder one, right? How do you, how do you inspire, give people hope? Because it's, you can't talk about, you can't talk about it. You can't go into a village of cocoa farmers and say, we're going to make you hopeful about the future. You just have to put down programs mm-hmm. um, that are going to make financial sense for them that are going to motivate them. So it's, it's not, you know, um, you know, donations coming in from an outside source to drop a school in a village where they have no connection to where the money came from to build the school. It's, they see their village evolving through their own labor and their own, own work. Um, but it's that hope that's, that's much more important because that's again, future based thinking. And we've seen little things, little anecdotes that are very meaningful. Like, I don't know, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I, I talked to all my neighbors for two years every day about, you know, put your chickens in a coop because if they're not running around, you can fatten them up. And then you can either, you know, when you, you're ready to eat the chicken, you can have more meat for your family. Or when you want to sell it, you can make more money because the chicken weighs more. Well, that never worked because, um, you know, they, in order to put a chicken into a coop, you have to feed it and they didn't have enough food to divert from their table to the right, chicken. Right. So, you know, two years ago on a visit, I was you know, walking through the, uh, one of the towns we work with, um, with the president of the cooperative. And he's like, I want to show you something. And he pulled me around to the side of, of his house and there was a little pen or a cage with geese in it. He's like, look what I put in last year. Wow. The fattest, fattest geese in the town. And I was just like, this, this is why we do this yeah. for stuff like that. Oh man, um, that gave me chills. I, I know exactly then, what you're talking about. Yeah. And then another one is, um, yeah, a, a couple years ago, you know, we were talking with the cooperative. We will meet pretty much weekly, monthly with, with farmers. I'm only down there maybe twice a year or so, but whenever I do, I, I like to just ask them what's working, what's not, mm-hmm. where do you want to see yourself um, or the cooperative in, in a couple of years. Those types of aspirational questions usually um, fall on deaf ears in in communities that are really poor. It gets back to them, you know, not being able to think too much about the future. And so I asked the cooperative members, you know, what do you want this cooperative to, to be? And and one person said, We want this is this cooperative is a mountain and we want to build it and we want it to be the biggest mountain in this part of Madagascar so that all the other cocoa farmers can it, it's big enough that all the other cocoa farmers can see it as the example of, of how to run a cocoa cooperative. Wow. And again, I was like that, that level of aspirational thinking I'd, I'd been you know, involved with the country for 20 years. And that was probably the first time I'd seen that level of aspirational thinking in a, in a rural community. I love it. And, and that's the difference between, you know, progress and not. Yeah, that's absolutely it. That's so cool. Um, so before we, we go to the final set of questions I have for you, where can people find out more information about Beyond Good and, and how, where can they buy this chocolate? Yeah, so you go to our website, beyondgood.com. Um, we're nationally distributed at Whole Foods Market. So you can walk into any Whole Foods Market and find the product. Um, we're in probably 2,000 stores total around the country. So there's a good chance if, you have a local cooperative um, or a natural organic food store that we'd be, we'd be in one of those stores. 
That's amazing. Awesome. So just as I ask everyone the same first question, Tim, I ask the same set of last questions. And it's kind of rapid fire. And you should say the first thing that pops into your head, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's your favorite book? Uh, I knew you were going to ask something like that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I like compartmentalize them into subjects. Okay. Um, so favorite book in the, in, in terms of the book I've read most in my life is the Tao Te Ching, which is, um, you know, talks a little bit about Zen Buddhism. Nice. Good one. Um, okay. The second is the person who inspires you the most. Um, I have to say my wife, um, we've been married six years. We've been together for about 12, um, cool as a cucumber. Um, I wouldn't be able to, to do what I do without her support. So that's, that's, amazing. that's actually much easier than, than my favorite book. <laughs> that's great. Good. And the last one is what makes you most excited about the work you're doing? Every time. Uh, two things, right? One is every time I get on an airplane to go to Madagascar. Um, And then the second is anytime I I can do a chocolate tasting side by side with with anybody, the customer or a retailer. And I I show them, you know, we do a side by side tasting of a traditional commodity chocolate, which everyone knows, and then single origin Madagascar, which very few people know. And you see that their eyes pop out of their head when they when they taste our product. Oh, cool. um, those are those are the two two things that give me the most um, gratification. Awesome, that's great. It has been so cool to talk to you. I think everyone should go out and buy this chocolate right now and and support what you're doing and support the farmers that, who you're working with. It's been great to talk to you. I, I will look forward to hopefully meeting you in person soon. Sounds good, Danny. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.